Welcome back to part two of Nothing Never Happens on Ecopedagogies and our conversation with Dr. Laurel Kearns and Dr. Tim Van Meter. Okay, Tim, if you could talk a little bit about the seminary farm at Methodist uh, Theological School and what's going on at your school in your um, MDiv with the concentration uh, in, in ecology and um, justice specialization? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, Seminary Hill Farm at Methodist Theological School in Ohio uh -huh. is uh, our project that started about four years ago, about four and a half now. We're in our fourth growing season. Uh -huh. uh, last year we produced 40,000 pounds of food. Wow. And uh, that's served, a uh, significant amount of that is served in our dining hall, as well as food from about 15 to 20 other local farms that we source within 40 miles, all of food in our dining hall. Mm -hmm. Well, 90 plus percent is sourced local, humane, organic. Um, mm -hmm. Not all are organic certified, but that's a whole other conversation about why that might be. Um, and uh, the farm is just one of the ecological initiatives on campus. I, I was at Agnes Scott last week, as you know, and yeah. deeply impressed with y'all's commitments. And I'm going to try to challenge our folks to yeah. bring those on board, too. But we have geothermal, that uh, about 18 one-ton wells that take care of our classroom and administration building for a deep well geothermal. And we have a solar array that supplies about 20% to 25% of our electricity within uh -huh. those same buildings. And um, all of these are part of the ecological and sustainability commitments of the institutions, part of our mission statement, and part uh -huh. of the trust. And within that, we have uh, the ability to focus in on ecology and justice with uh -huh. uh, with our MDiv, but also with our Master of Arts in Practical Theology, which is a two-year degree, and also our Doctor of Ministry, which is a um, a degree for uh, pastors in the parish to think about ecology and, and justice. Mm -hmm. And uh, within all of those, um, I teach uh, a number of courses. Uh, I've got mm -hmm. one coming up this summer called Field Theology, Water and Watersheds. Mm. Um, got a co my colleague, Dr. Lenny Negaragazzi, um, who teaches in race, theology, and ecology um, uh -huh. courses within that. And then we've got a couple of affiliated faculty, um, again, this summer for a one-week intensive. Dr. Christopher Carter will be teaching a course on uh, a deeper shade of green on um, African-American ecology, theology, and ethics here. Uh -huh. on. And so these are all part of the overall curriculum and, and vision of the institution. Yeah, well, how did your institution get to that point in that commitment? Do, do you want me to tell the public story or the private story? They're kind of close. <laughs> <laughs> Whichever one you think uh, reveals the true origins of uh, how, okay. you, how you uh, did walk the journey to this point. And I, yes, and I think walk is, and is an important part of that. About nine years ago, I got the first course that I was able to teach in ecology uh -huh. and theology in the curriculum. It was called uh, Ecological Religi Religious Education, um, 
kind of arose from some of the commitments in my dissertation and place-based okay. understanding of that. And as part of that course, we would walk our campus, and we have 80 acres. A lot of it was mowed. Uh, some of it's in forest and uh, a little bit of stream and wetland. Um, and I would talk, walk and talk with students about how do we revision this particular place in light of what we're reading, whether it be the tragedy of the commons or uh, David Orr's Earth in Mind or uh, C.A. Bauer's uh, Educating for Ecologically Sustainable Culture. We kind of rethink all the campus and um, and we would talk about what would it mean to grow food here? What would it mean to have a more ecologically sustainable campus? And mm -hmm. I would say these are great ideas. Our uh, institutional president has an open door policy. I suggest you use that hmm. and go and talk to him about that. Then the great thing is I've said this multiple occasions and I fully believe this. It's really easy for a faculty member to walk around and kind of shake a few branches and try to make some things happen. It's it's much more difficult for the leader of an institution such as uh, President Rundell to catch the vision and go with it with the trustees and, and other faculty and all that. And that's, that's kind yes. of the relationship here that uh, was just wonderful and surprising. And, um, and so about four years we started the farm and part of what was so important for that was we had three other prior failed community gardens, uh, uh -huh. like you'll see the number of theological institutions, um, Princeton, others would have like a community garden type program going on. And they failed for a variety of reasons, but one of the big ones was uh, student effort. Uh, effort's not the right word, but yeah. uh, student engagement, particularly in the summertime. Yeah. And and for this initiative, for the larger farm, we actually had uh, funds available through a donation to bring on a couple of full-time farm staff, as well right. as a chef, to change the food and farm all at once. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and I, I don't think this is right for every institution, but for us in the middle of Ohio, mm -hmm. to have skilled individuals who understand farming as craft or mm -hmm. to not just be a student initiative has uh, radically transformed our campus and our understanding of what we can do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how does that translate into the classroom? Um, yeah. In terms of your courses, what's the connection between the farm and what you do in the classroom? Um, a number of students will volunteer out there on different work days, and, um, and a number of faculty and students and staff are members of the CSA, about 150 okay. families. But in, in, it varies from class to class. In, in my course on food, land, and faith formation, um, we work directly on this farm and visit a number of others to try to engage how will folks as they move into vocation of whether it be community or or church uh, understanding of their life going forward how can they begin to think about bringing these skills into those contexts and so uh, in the state of Ohio and this may be true in Georgia and other uh -huh. places um, churches own a lot of land yeah and we have some of our students, uh, our alums, who are now out there thinking about, okay, how do I shift our use of this land? Um, uh -huh. A couple of places that rent to commodity farmers. How do we shift that? And so that's one particular course. But each course is trying to find an authentic way to engage the farm. Um, we're actually in two weeks having a, 
uh, a, what we're calling seminary, seminary Hill Colloquy, a mm -hmm. gathering for folks to think about a theology, ecology, and anti-racism work um, funded through a grant by the Wabash uh, mm -hmm. Center for Teaching and Learning. And that is to uh, make even deeper and more fundamental bridges between multiple disciplines in the farm. Um, yeah. So I do it. My colleague in theology, ecology, and racism does that. Um, a New Testament colleague does it. Ethics mm -hmm. colleague does some of that. But it'd be great to think more broadly within the curriculum, and that's what we're in the midst of doing. Yeah. Uh, so, in terms of your commitment to an intersectional approach that deals with mm -hmm. um, uh, not only uh, race but social class and and the farm reaching out to low-income people in the area mm -hmm. uh, for example um, how did the uh, how did your seminary reach that understanding and that consciousness about it being intersectional I, th I think part of it's through a, a series of kind of faculty working groups and grants mm -hmm. um, some funded through the Wabash Center. Part of it's just our location. Um, we are 12 miles north of Columbus, Ohio. Uh, mm -hmm. We have a long-term relationship with a couple of urban farms down there, Franklinton Farms in particular, but one of our alums also started some work like this in, uh, in the Hilltop area. Mm -hmm. um, we've had a community wellness grant and initiative where we're actively working with both Ohio State and uh, a health group called Ohio Health, Ohio State University, I'm sorry, yeah. and uh, Ohio Health Group to um, bring healthier food into urban neighborhoods at affordable prices. Um, uh -huh. And the, the other thing is um, our accrediting, regional accrediting agency, um, Higher Learning Commission, requires that we have a quality initiative and uh, the, the 2018, 2015 uh, QI proposal talks about the anti-racism work of MTSO and the ecological work, particularly around climate change and food security, mm -hmm. being the two foci of the ongoing quality initiative that we'll take on for the mm -hmm. next. So that comes from the dean and president and working faculty office. So there's a... Uh, yeah. There's a significant vision, and, and part of what uh, I think is, is important for me to, to do is to try to continue to bridge within that vision because I uh, my enthusiasm sometimes take over, and mm -hmm. I could be a little bit more uh, hospitable and gracious to my colleagues. It's <laughs> a growing yeah. edge for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, where do you see uh, the work that you're doing um, in ecological justice at the seminary five years from now, where would you like to see it headed? Well, I, I would love to be further down the road that Agnes Scott's on. I, I would love to have a goal of an end date for when we're fully sustainable um, and uh, off coal, off petroleum, hmm. uh, with a vision for, for where we are. I would I would love for us to, um, we're, we're kind of a, a progressive island in a relatively, uh, Mm -hmm. interest with some conservative bent state I, I would love for us to be uh, known for welcoming um, all people into this kind of work um, we're, we're a place where LGBTQI uh, 
individuals can find hospitality and yeah. safety and uh, we want to continue to do that we want to be continually um, anti-racist um, mm -hmm. in a way that creates larger hospitality and all that is woven into ecology because as, as we all know the folks who are um, pushed to the edges of dominant culture will be the ones who suffer first as we move yeah. forward yeah we'd like to be a, a, an oasis for people to think about how do we change um, our culture? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what are you seeing as uh, graduates go out into churches mm -hmm. and nonprofit work, you know, uh, the other um, cultural work they may be doing? What, what effects are you seeing from the work that they've done mm -hmm. uh, at the seminary? Yeah. We've got... We've got two or three in the parish who are working with their parishes, or maybe more than that, to try to rethink their land use, um, whatever's available, mm -hmm. start a small garden, uh, engage a feeding, a, a food program to where it's not just handing processed food to individuals, but looking awesome. for healthier food. We've got a couple of uh, alums from the MAPT who are starting more of an urban farming project or working mm -hmm. at a state level uh, with the denomination to try to th rethink mm -hmm. their creation, their vision. Um, one of our alums, who's just a remarkable young woman, has done uh, soil education for the soil services department as well as starting an urban farm as well as doing other forms of education. She tends to link together a number of uh, jobs in a way to sustain her life and family, but is uh, mm -hmm. actively engaged in this. Uh, and then a, a couple of our alums from this year, one's going to get involved with uh, hopefully some work in um, Northeast Ohio for some uh, food security uh, yeah. work up in that area. And then another one of our alums is actually graduating from here with an MA and will begin the PhD program at Ohio State University in uh, uh, hmm. Food and food justice through their school of environment and natural resources. Mm -hmm. Well, for for you uh, personally, as you've walked this journey, uh, what are some of the transformative mo moments um, doing this work at the farm and and in your classes and you know with alums and the various uh, yeah. community partners and institutions? Yeah. Um, I think there's a number of them I'm trying to think. I mean, one of them is to try to move from uh, maybe 15, 20 years ago, a real commitment to place-based education, uh -huh. to realize that place-based is, is an important thing. And, and, you know, some of the leaders in that, David Orr and, and, uh, and yeah. others, and, and Wendell Berry's work uh -huh. are still resources but not without the kind of significant critical social analysis you might find through maybe a, I don't know, some like David Harvey's geography or yeah. uh, Freire or a number of folks. And that, that has to do with both with the farm, mm -hmm. but also some of our cross-cultural programs to like Chiapas or to Tamil Nadu in South India, where folks doing this work with people outside of um, institutions uh, and, and are and working with uh, folks in deep poverty um, push back against uh, some of the intellectual assertions to, that I might make. Um, a year ago in Chiapas uh, with the EZLN community, um, just their vision of sharing and the vision of leadership mm 
mm-hmm. the articulate social analysis of their contemporary situation um, pushed me outside of liberation theology and liberative models of education yeah. theoretically to, to kind of say, oh my gosh, on the uh-huh. ground, this is richer. In my head, it was one thing, but on the ground, this is uh-huh. much richer. And that's been a pretty transformative moment that I'm still wrestling with a bit. Um, yeah, and how to translate it from yes. Chiapas to Central Ohio. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what have you found uh, in the classroom? You know, your starting point is to get students into their own stories um, and, you know, the positionality of their own lives. Um, And there's a certain kind of investment there. How do you move from there uh, with some of this um, theological, some of the theological readings that are I would imagine very challenging for for folks coming out of more conservative or traditional um, religious faith to um, uh, kind of social action and social change work, movement building to policy work um, in legislatures. Uh, you know, how do you uh, get the whole picture in in your classrooms? A lot of the good stuff I steal directly from Laurel. So <laughs> I might want to talk about that. Yeah, yeah. I just like Tim and I. I get the the privilege of doing these conversations together, and I just learn so much every time. Um, so let me. I'm going to back up just a moment to uh-huh. say, um, in a complex area like New Jersey, New York understanding place is a little bit different than how it gets depicted sometimes that this is about, you know, going and finding the river or whatever. Um, And so in that sense, environmental justice and place-based go hand in hand here. Uh And I think he was was saying that also. So sometimes that's a tension that's portrayed out there in the field, so to speak. Um, And we always have to resist it because, you know, I really take to heart the definition of environment from the environmental justice movement. Uh-huh. And that is the environment is where we live, work, play, learn, and pray. Uh-huh. And so in this area, just to understand the levels of toxicity of where the pollution comes from, of the kind of incredible resistance work that communities are doing and communities are transforming, that that is a, a real education. So at the same time that I assign my students you know, I take class outside or I take them through our arboretum, I also assign them that wherever they live, two times a week for 15 minutes, they have to pick a place that they're going to sit and observe and learn from it. Uh And I tell them I want it to be not the mall, um, that I want it to be totally human constructed. Um, Uh But most of them can't find places where human presence isn't dominant. Uh Uh-huh. That idea of learning from place, of um, that all learning doesn't come through the classroom or books or even language, is a really important one. But then for them to start to see those places of resurrection, those places of life, even in places uh-huh. that seem very, very urban, I think is really important. And for some of my students who come from very urban areas, uh-huh. um, 
they're not very tuned to any wildlife or plant life that might be around them. And that starts really opening their eyes to the kind of diversity that's there. But then what I want them to do from that, and I, I assign an environmental autobiography also, it's a little different, and then I want them to look at where their attitudes toward nature and environment have been shaped, either by uh -huh. their, their own family histories, perhaps, of migrating from the land, um, yeah. really important stories for African-American students of, of the uh -huh. land in the South being a place of punishment, of danger, of the woods. Yeah. Uh, what might have shaped their understandings, the religious messages they've heard, the own, their own significant encounters, like Rick, um, not Rick, Tim said, of a rock, that's where Rick came from, <laughs> the word rock, um, of a rock, a place we know that many activists are motivated by the place that, that is gone. Mm -hmm. Are are really motivated by the animal that they encounter. So I want them to talk about those significant moments of recognizing animals as other beings. Um, yeah. And so some people start. I, I teach, you know, of course, in religion animals, but some people start with the the companion animal that they help them realize that just sort of intelligence and soul and emotion and caring. Uh -huh. And they broaden that out. So exactly, since I'm a sociologist, I want them to first see how individual patterns add up to social problems. Yeah. But also individuals can then help create social change. Uh -huh. And then I do a uh -huh. lot of work on how policy restricts or encourages changes in not just individual behavior, but institutional organizational uh -huh. corporate behavior. In other words, how policy restricts um, what we can do or maybe helps us do the work that we couldn't do as an individual. Uh -huh. So making that connection and then the, the last piece of that that I think is really important in the classroom, I know Tim does this, is really um, challenging any of the narratives that sort of present one way of understanding wilderness or one uh -huh. way understanding farming, some that might tend toward sort of a romanticization of, uh -huh. of spiritual nature, and get them to really understand how race and class and geography uh -huh. and, you know, sort of ethnic backgrounds, national backgrounds, how all of those come into our understandings. And so one of my favorite um, stories to tell is of an activist I wrote a chapter with at Faith in Place, Veronica Kyle. Okay. And her organization kept getting grants from environmental organizations to work on things like habitat restoration and, you know, um, wildflower monarch, you know, for monarchs, um, planting yeah. milkweed and stuff. And this just wasn't going anywhere in the south side of Chicago with the black and brown communities that she worked with. Mm until she had an insight that these were, this was a way to provide hospitality for migrating species. Oh. Most of the folks that she knew on the South Side had family histories like hers that they migrated from somewhere else there. Yeah. Left behind something that was no longer hospitable, and what did they want when they got to the new place? 
They wanted familiar food. They wanted familiar surroundings. They wanted a sense of welcome and hospitality. And tying mm -hmm. that in mm -hmm. with the sort of migration stories of the community, you know, the churches, the communities she worked with, changed everyone's thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And and those insights that one narrative doesn't work in the classroom, that we need to open up all these different ways of mm -hmm. relating to land of relating to place, of understanding who's impacted by environmental issues. Um, I think it's really important work that Tim and I both are doing in the classroom. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'd add to that, too, that I think Laurel and I share kind of a vision of breaking outside the bubble of the classroom. Uh -huh. It's absolutely essential that we get our students out into communities that are actually asking these questions and pushing forward around this. So um, I think many institutions of higher education, including MTSO, it's really easy to just kind of rest and relax in this beautiful space. But we've got to go down to Franklinton. We've got to go to other parts of Columbus that also have their own beauty. It's not that we go down in any way except to learn and to hear from folks who are, uh -huh. are deeply committed to making uh, big transitions within their communities. And that's essential. Um, you know, a couple theorists I'm playing with uh -huh. around the whole idea of pedagogy is Marshall Ganz's understanding of narrative organizing and what that means to kind yeah. of uh -huh. bring people together to go move forward around story. And then my own, the place, you know, just comes out of what I said earlier. I, I realized I was talking about the doctrine of discovery and some of the uh, colonialization of, of the West without really understanding it. So I'm actually taking an online course discussion group to learn more about the doctrine of discovery because I... Uh -huh. That that's something that's essential for my own teaching, and I need to um, dive a little deep into that. And uh, I, I think those things will continue to reshape the classroom. Um, our best students are too busy because they're actively engaged in making change in the world while they're trying to get their education yeah. and uh, trying to figure out how, ways to support them and give them both uh, theoretical uh and, and practical uh, engagement in practice as to how they might go forward and get that kind of form of thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, this is all really, really fantastic stuff. Um, so what are you learning from your students right now uh, as you teach these courses? What are they bringing that um, has taught you something that you didn't know before? For me, each one of those autobiographies teaches me and helps me mm -hmm. to see the different ways that people put things together. Yeah. And I'm fortunate that I get to, you know, that I include a unit on um, environment at the end of a whole course on religion and social process that looks at structures of oppression and, mm -hmm. you know, challenges, religious challenges to those structures. Mm -hmm. And so the way that different students um, put things together in that class when they, you know, the, I sort of say, look, this is how the environment is connected to sexism, it's connected to racism, it's connected to heterosexism, all these yeah. ways of worldviews and, and structures are connected, how they then put it together um, and the kind of projects they propose uh -huh. always teaching me taking students, I mean, we can't have business as usual in the classroom. That's the problem. Uh -huh. We can't indoors. That's the problem. Um, 
So going outside and learning from them or being in our community garden with them, you know, Tim skips to have a farm on his campus. <laughs> okay. I'm with a community garden and, and different things that sort of um, both Tim and I are influenced by one of your um, institution's former uh, faculty, David Orr. That's right, um, yeah. And does wonderful work on ecological literacy, and he always emphasizes that we need to help bring alive awe and wonder. Uh -huh. and, and I think that's important because sometimes we can get too much on um, all the things that are wrong, all the, you know, especially in this area, how everything is hazardous, toxic, polluted, but that what, what evokes that sense of wonder, whether it's pulling up a carrot for the first time from the dirt, or being able to sit in a big green space, or when we go out to different places, we go to Genesis Farm with Sister <laughs> Miriam Therese McGillis, an incredible, um, dedicated sort of eco-literacy um, uh -huh. place. So just every time learning how they see it and then how they root it in their theology, and this is one piece I wanted to make sure to... Um, bring in because teaching in the classroom taught me that um, people say um, it's a common cliche that environmentalism is a white thing it's for white folks and that never was true in my classroom at all and then I was able to work with a data set that came out of public religious research institute uh -huh. uh, that they did on attitudes to climate change, and it shows that African-American Protestants and Hispanic Catholics are the two most concerned religious groups in the United States huh. about climate change. And when I did a little further work with the data and connecting it with the kind of theological attitudes that we think um, yeah. are dominion that, you know, sort of um, a sort of biblical literalism things that scholars have thought are related to a sort of not caring for the earth, it doesn't hold true for those students. Uh -huh. In other words, black Protestants, Hispanic Catholics look a lot like white evangelical uh -huh. on a lot of these measures of theology, and yet they come in a very different place on the environment and climate change. Interesting, yeah. It's really interesting, and Part of it, it held true to exactly what I was seeing in my classroom. But what it also showed me, one, that data set says that the real big difference, it's not white evangelicals versus white Protestants. They're all, all the white groups, white Catholics, white Protestants, white evangelicals, are equally um, not as concerned. And so we realize how race plays a really big role in it. And what it came down to was who could imagine climate change affecting them and people like them uh -huh. in, in other parts of the globe. And so I like to sort of try and get my students to see how in that data set points as to who may have a greater moral imagination. Uh -huh. The ability to think about someone other than people like themselves. Yeah. yeah. And that is so important. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, Tim. I think, well, I think okay. I've, I don't think I would have gone after that data set looking for that if it hadn't been for the students in my classroom ah. constantly uh -huh. reminding me. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you're talking about the, the data around, uh, around uh, 
quite groups of people. And I, I think about Upton Sinclair's uh, qu quote, maybe pos maybe it was actually him, but maybe it's misattributed about it's really impossible for an individual to uh, think about justice if it affects their own livelihood. Mm -hmm. and, <laughs> and with uh, white folks being at the top of the economic um, food chain in so many ways, I think it's really difficult for them to think about leaving their comfort in ways that allow other people to be part of it. Um, back to, and the question, I think Laurel touched on this a little bit too, but one of the things my students have taught me and are continuing to teach me, uh -huh. um, a couple years ago, a number of students came to me over the course of a year and said, we love your courses, but we can't leave beaten up and crushed one more time. Uh -huh. And, yeah. and yeah. so, so how do you, you know, and so, and they were right. I mean, they were absolutely right that I was fully aware and, and, and lost in some ways in just my uh, reading of, of the government and international, the UN reports and all those things and reading of the, the kind of uh, the science and the models and how it's going forward and trying to present that as clearly as possible mm -hmm. and, and, to, and, and leaving out um, what does that mean. And uh, um, the throwaway line that I used in class and I've used elsewhere of, well, this is all going bad, but thankfully I'll be dead. Uh, but it's really bad. It's not a helpful thing for students who are 20 years, 30 years younger than I am. Yeah. Thinking about it's not really helpful for me um, either. Um, and so a part of what I'm working now, and I'm actually teaching this course right now, is on the construction of hope, a theological construction mm -hmm. of hope that begins in grief and lament and moves into kind of clear-eyed reality, um, understanding the world real both through what is happening, but not being caught up in the kind of uh, false narrative of reality that only bad things are happening. Yeah. Reclaiming beauty, reclaiming uh, a vision for justice in a way that calls for uh, deep living in communities of people. And then from that, constructing hope. And, and in, that, in that course, um, asking students to kind of live with the poetry of a particular poet or a couple of poets um, and also mm -hmm. art. So, um, yeah. and the the artists go from Andy Goldsworthy and uh, some of his environmental installation art to Faham Piku, who's an Atlanta-based artist that yeah. is does uh, art out of a kind of hip hop tradition. Um, he's got some of his work at the High, and um, and poets from Chance the Rapper to Mary Oliver, and and students uh -huh. kind of pick their place in that, and over time. Um, and student presentations at the end of the grief section, at the end of the reality section, and the end of the hope mm -hmm. section. Mm -hmm. um, I'm actually working on getting this written up for um, the Teaching Theology magazine or somebody to hopefully have this out there a little okay. bit better. Yeah. Into the summer. But this this uh, understanding of of um, our work in particularly in theological institution, but maybe in all of higher education, is not just to name the challenges, but to offer our students the possibility of remaining engaged in these challenges through kind of a hopeful, but not optimistic. I think, you know, one of the things uh -huh. that I think optimism is a, uh, covers up reality, whereas uh, hope builds from what is real and moves forward. And, and how do we do that for our students? And uh, you know, part of that's back to the, the farm thing. I, I find it really hopeful uh -huh. um, when people discover that sweat is a gift hmm. as opposed to a curse. And just to be out there across the rows from each other, either weeding or planting or doing whatever, we've had days of faculty 
staff farm work days where mm-hmm. uh, just deep joy as you discover mm-hmm. each other yeah and, uh, that kind of engagement and so that's another pedagogical tool um not tool but but moment i, I don't mm-hmm. again i i think the idea of pedagogical tools is important and i don't want to dismiss that yeah but i, I really love surprise and i really mm-hmm. love set situations where all of a sudden everybody's teaching each other in a frarian methodology or yeah did that everyone begins to discover the depth of knowing in that room and we we all just kind of leave there in a mm-hmm. different way and, and with the course i'm teaching now um i have to say there have been multiple moments where um in 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 spite of not uh, multiple moments where the sacred has entered the room mm-hmm. and uh be, just because we 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 were with each other and with a particular poem um Gary Snyder's poem on uh, where he sits with his wife uh, as she uh, dies of breast cancer and then moves through mm-hmm. her through the entire ritual of death. Uh, the end of his collection came out in 2014 or 15. Um, begins with a warning to the reader to leave now, to go away. But to read yeah. that and just to have a whole room understand a depth of grief and share it together was a, was a sacred moment. And mm-hmm. yeah. those... Those kind of things that um, I think our students can bring, sometimes we can bring, but it, it, it requires a depth of engagement and commitment to the topic. And um, part of what is is a luxury here, too, is that uh, a lot of my courses are elective. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if folks don't, don't, don't want to engage it, I don't have to fight with them. They already <laughs> know where Dr. Van Meek is going to go. Yeah. Um, but that's also, it's also a problem, too, because it would be wonderful to have a classroom full of folks who are in much different per- places that we can wrestle a bit. And that doesn't happen as often now that so many of my courses are electives. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah thanks. Well, we're at time. We're really over time, but yeah. we could go on forever. Um, yes, thank you. There's so many things to talk about. Uh, so are there any final words you want to leave us with in terms of um, your future vision for your classes um, and, you know, the, the whole subject of uh, religion and eco-theology? I am. Um, I think that one of the things um, is that if the prof- the teacher doesn't walk their talk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We don't reveal how emotionally it impacts us, how we struggle to try and mm-hmm. do the right thing, that we're not eco-saints. Yeah. Um, we're all on this journey together. That, that makes it real. Um, mm-hmm. I know some professors are, you know, don't want to be emotional in the classroom, but you can't talk about climate change. You can't talk about mm-hmm. the headlines that have shaped our students' lives and their futures and and remain sort of, quote, rational and dispassionate. So I think that's, you know, when I hear what students appreciate about my way of teaching, it's my passion, my Uh connection, my um, serious engagement with what does it mean to walk the talk. That I can't be authentic if I'm saying one thing and doing another. And I'm always working on that. It is such a work in progress. As uh-huh. we all know. Yeah, exactly. Just to name that despair. And, and you yeah. know, I'm 
I'm Quaker, and so sometimes it's just silence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> poetry, um, just so many different ways to try and and recognize that's real. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. 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 I, I agree with everything Laurel says. I think one of the hopeful things for me is that Laurel's in the world. I also, um, you know, my title, as you said, and, and, and can add coordinator for ecological initiatives on our campus, too, because that's mm-hmm. the reason here is exciting. But it's the connection between youth and ecology that it, this place has allowed me. And there is just something really, we're in a, an amazing moment with young people. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I, I have such hope coming out of this that uh, uh-huh. they will continue in their grief to find ways to kind of challenge. I'm sorry for saying this with this, but I cannot say it without emotion. Uh-huh. It's just, it is time. We have, we have tr- done our damnedest to tame the passions of young people and to try to give them games and then and and ask them to check out and give them an education that only offers them limited hope and limited options as we try to tame everything that they're about and they broke through anyway and I hope this movement grows I hope that uh, this uh, this uh, our culture of sedation and seduction towards things and our culture uh-huh. towards uh, incoherent noise which is um which silences young people instead of allows them to choose silence like emma gonzalez chose mm. that's hopeful that they're they're fighting against that and they're willing to take on this one particular thing in a really important challenging ways but if if they can help call us all to a new vision of democracy that that's just so deeply hopeful for me right now and uh i look forward to being in that in that world Oh, thank you. And I want to yeah. recognize that many of our students are also our age, and that um, benefit of having people in the classroom who've given up careers in various places because they want to make a difference, they want to change the world also, uh-huh. and they are worried about the future of their children, nieces, nephews, neighbors. Uh-huh. Um, that kind of intergenerational classroom, which we get in theological education more than probably you do in the college. So I remember That's great right. um, women coming back to college at Agnes Scott. Um, that makes for a rich classroom um, and a real classroom. Yeah, it does. Well, on that note, Tim, Laurel, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. It's great to hear even more deeply uh, from Laurel. Thank you so much. Our theme music and interstitial music is by Aviva and the Flying Penguins and Lance Eric Hagen. Additional music, A Prayer for Syria, is by Paul Myrie. This Nothing Never Happens podcast on ecopedagogies was edited at Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia. The Nothing Never Happens team includes our audio engineer, China Wilson, Assistant Audio Engineers Megan Simmons and Abigail Cox. Our social media coordinator is Kirsten Schultz. Our technical consultant is Emily Gwynn. And our producer, Emeritus, is Calvin Bergamy. I'm Tina Pippett.